So we'll be looking tonight at the passage that Matt just read from Psalm 123, and you can uh, follow along as we, we do so in the worship folder there. If you brought a Bible, that's where we'll be looking. One of the themes that you see when you step back from the Bible is that the Bible describes God's people as a wilderness community. And that that idea comes straight out of the book of Numbers, when after God has brought his people out of Egypt and rescued them from 400 years of slavery, they are a people who are on the way to the promised land. But they're journeying through this wilderness area, which is a barren desert. There are poisonous snakes. There's no food. It's scorching heat cold nights, and they're doing it with none of the modern sort of um, camping gear that we have today, and they're doing it with their children of whatever age, most of whom perhaps can't walk, some probably can, but the writer of Hebrews picks up that same image in Hebrews 3 and 4 and applies the same idea to the church that we are a wilderness community, that we are a people on the way, that we are not yet home. And what we're doing this fall is we're looking at a section of Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that give us an insider's perspective of what it means to be a wilderness community, a people on the way. What's it sound like to be a community of people who are journeying home. And what are the ups and downs that we face? What is it like emotionally, mentally, spiritually to follow after Jesus, to follow after God in the midst of all of the, the threats, the griefs, the distress, even the joys and the triumphs of this journey. And so far, we've looked at Psalm 120 through 122, and we come today to Psalm 123, and if you were to look back at Psalm 120, you might wonder, are we making any progress? Because Psalm 120 and Psalm 123 have very similar situations. And if you were here last week, you might remember that we, uh, we looked at a psalm of arrival on this journey. These psalms all have the same title, Psalms of Ascent, which is a word that would have described the journey that God's people would make up to Jerusalem three times a year. And last week we looked at one where it describes their arrival up to Jerusalem to celebrate and worship God as he had commanded them to do. But here, now we're back in Psalm 123, back in a situation of distress. And it's worth asking, so what's happened? Are we right back where we started? Haven't we made any progress? And that, I think, raises a question that I want us to wrestle with tonight. That this psalm, I think, helps us to to both ask and to answer. And it's this, what do you do When you are at the end of your rope, what do you do 
when you're fed up, when you have nothing left to give, when you're utterly exasperated and overwhelmed and fatigued and beaten down? What do you do when you're at the end of your rope? Well, this psalm, similar to Psalm 121, it begins to lift to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. That's where this psalm begins. And it's the first step into answering this question of what do you do when you're at the end of your rope? So let's look at the psalm this way. Let's, let's look at why we look to the Lord, how we look to the Lord, and then finish with, for what do we look to the Lord for? What do we look to him for? So how, why do we look to him? How do we look to him? And then what for? So first, let's look at why we look to the Lord. If you look here in verse 1, and then verses 3 and 4, in verse 1, like we already read, it begins, to you I lift up my eyes, O ye who are enthroned in the heavens. But then, look in verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. This psalm gives us basically two reasons why we look to the Lord. The first I'm going to begin with is, we'll call it, it's the negative reason in verses 3 and 4. And the answer is because life is more than we can handle. The first reason we would look to the Lord is because life is more than we can handle. In verses 3 to 4, notice these words of contempt, of scorn, and then contempt again in verse 4. This is a word that describes the experience of the psalmist as being a person who is despised, who is dismissed, mocked, treated as of no consequence, treated as even less than human. And not just a little bit or from time to time, but notice in verse 3, we've had more than enough of this. Twice he says that. Literally, it's to be filled up to the brim. There's no more room before it begins to overflow. He's experienced, along with those that he's with, more than enough of this contempt. And to try to help us to maybe think about what this would feel like, maybe you might remember um, a story about a, uh, a young woman uh, who was a um, a PR professional. Her name was Justine Seiko. I think that's how she says her last name. And uh, if you remember the story a few years ago, uh, there was a, a writer in New York Times. Uh, his name is John Ronson, who wrote about this. And the story goes where she was on her way to Cape, Down, Cape Town, South Africa. And she was in a layover in Heathrow in London. And she was tweeting about what she was doing and um, Right before she took off from Heathrow to, to Cape Town, she tweeted a tweet that I won't, I won't repeat because it, it'll just distract you because it was pretty, it got a lot of attention. Became the number one trending tweet in the world. And, uh, but she tweeted it right before she took off. And over the next 11 hours, the internet lit up over what she said. And she had no idea. And she landed in Cape Town to just sheer horror when she turned her phone back on. And all of the contempt 
and the hatred and the scorn that came pouring through her phone. And this writer in the New York Times saw this story and began to think about all of the public shaming and contempt and scorn that gets thrown at people through social media. So much so that, and he actually got to interview uh, Justine, and as he was talking to her, she said, I cried out my body weight in the first 24 hours, she told him. It was incredibly traumatic. You don't sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night forgetting where you are. And then he recounts how she released an apology statement and cut her her travel uh, to Cape Town short. And workers were threatening to strike at the hotels she had booked if she showed up. And she was told no one could guarantee her safety. And he chronicles a number of other stories just like that. Now, I tell you that story not to defend her or in any way, shape, or form, but simply to give you a picture of what it would feel like to have other people's scorn just rain down on your life to where you, you, you fear for your safety. You lose your job. You lose friendships. Utter scorn, utter contempt, utter dismissal, treating you less than human. And here, this is the experience that the psalmist presents us with that leads him to cry out to the Lord, to look to the Lord. Now think for a moment. It's, the, it's living under this contempt and scorn that the psalmist says has been more than enough. But it may be, this is just not the only experience that's overwhelming or that feels like more than enough. What about work? What about parenting? What about marriage? What about singleness? What about living in in the midst and, and watching injustice and inequality and racism? Is it more than enough? The experiences that we have can go well beyond just this one that the the psalmist here speaks of. And what I want you to think about for a moment is that this is one of the reasons that we cry out to the Lord. We look to the Lord because life is more than we can handle. But that's not the only reason. The second reason here is positive. Look in verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here, the writer, he begins... And he says, you who are enthroned in the heavens. If you just linger over that word enthroned for a moment, that's kingly language. That's ruling language. That's a word that pictures God on his throne, ruling and reigning over all that he has made, including for the psalmist and for us, those things that are more than enough. So the two reasons that the psalmist gives here for why we look to the Lord, they're in contrast. And it's, in fact, verse 1 is the one that sets the context for looking to the Lord in the midst of any and every situation that proves more than enough, 
that leaves us exhausted and worn out. But not only do we see here that God is enthroned, that he rules over all he has made, elsewhere in the Psalms we also discover that he's just not high and lofty, exalted, ruling and reigning. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And in fact, the most powerful picture of this This point comes to us from the words of Jesus. The end of Matthew's gospel, after he has been crucified and buried and risen from the dead, the very last things he says to his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Think enthroned. This is the king speaking. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So why do we look to the Lord? We look to the Lord because life is overwhelming. But we also look to the Lord because God is on his throne. He is reigning and ruling over all that he has made. One of my uh, favorite book titles that I I have come across in recent years uh, is a book that goes by the title of When People Are Big and God is Small. That would be a good, a good window into this psalm, the experience of it. When people or circumstances become so big and so large that God and his word and his promises begin to feel really, really small and really, really weak and really powerless. And it's really, that's a pithy way to highlight one of the more practical problems that I think you and I face every day. God often seems so small and insignificant compared to the people and circumstances that we face. And so the question is, how do we look to the Lord in a way that can actually reorder our fears even when we're at the end of our rope? So let's look here for a moment. How, not only why do we look to the Lord, but how? Notice to illustrate how the psalmist thinks about this in verse 2, he uses a simile He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, the very use of this image of a master to a servant or a a mistress to a maidservant, it may raise questions. Because history is, is just littered with stories of oppression and abuse between masters and servants, mistresses and maidservants. But think about this for a moment. Perhaps that's actually part of the power of this image. And perhaps why the psalmist uses it in describing who God is and who we are in relationship to him. Because in contrast to all the other bad masters, here we are introduced to the one true and good master, to whom we can wholly give ourselves. In fact, if you look at the Bible as a whole, one of the ways that the Apostle Paul describes us is as slaves. We are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to our own desires. We're enslaved to the expectations and demands of others. 
They're bad masters. And here we're introduced to the one true and good master. In fact, this image reminds us of something that I think we all too often forget, particularly when life is more than we can handle. And it's this, that you are not your own. The simple truth that to be created in God's image, to bear his image, means you were made for him. You do not belong to yourself, which is probably one of the most uh, difficult, contrary truths of Scripture for an American mindset where we thrive on the idea of we can do what we want, when we want, where we want to, how we want to, And yet the scriptures again and again, and in this psalm, teach us that we do not belong to ourselves. And in fact, in light of the gospel, we're taught you were bought at a price. At a price nothing less than the very blood of Jesus Christ to all who trust in him. Now consider for a moment, what are the implications of this image? This idea that as master, as servants looking to the hand of their master, or as the eyes of a maidservant looking to the hand of her mistress. What are some implications of this? What does it look like? How do we look to the Lord? Well, just to name few quickly and then try to show you how I think all of these get tied together. We look to the Lord humbly in this image, looking to the Lord alone, the one who has absolute power But not only humbly, but also in utter dependence, looking to his hand, and in this case, not for orders, but for relief, and also submitting our needs to him. How we look to the Lord in in a way that leads to life and even a measure of rest in the midst of the chaos and overwhelming situations we we face is submitting our needs to him. But then also, look in verse 2 again at the end. It's waiting patiently, but also with confidence. He says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Patience. Till he has mercy upon us, there's confidence. Now, what's the one thing that might underlie all of these things of looking to him humbly in utter dependence, yielding to him and submitting our needs to him and waiting patiently for him. If there's one thing I I could, one idea to help wrap this up, to help you to see what I think the, the writer is saying here, it would fall under this theme that runs throughout the Bible, and it's the fear of the Lord. Over a hundred times, some even say 150 times, that idea, the fear of the Lord, occurs in the Scriptures. And what do we mean by that? Just to give you a little taste, the idea of the fear of the Lord is a word that helps to convey this idea is awe. It's not a word that we use that much, but let me try to give you an illustration of, of what, what awe could be like. I remember my freshman year in college, I was in Southern California, and... Um, in the, uh, the first semester I was there, we had a, a 4.7 earthquake. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever lived through an earthquake before. But you literally feel like the, the, the earth is going to fall out from under you. And it was one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had. And in fact, it had ripple effects because there were aftershocks. And school got canceled for three days, which made the earthquake kind of a nice thing. But um, it wreaked havoc. It was in L.A. And... Um, we would be outside playing basketball, and all of a sudden, an aftershock would come. And you, you couldn't play. Like, everything just stopped. That was my first experience of just utter awe at something so profoundly powerful. I was utterly helpless in the face of it. But a second thing happened where I grew up in the Midwest, and I was in Southern California. And I went with some friends to Zuma Beach, which is right near Malibu, California, and we were body surfing, which I had never done in the ocean like that. And no one bothered to tell me that when an enormous wave comes that you don't jump into it, you jump down into it. And so a a huge wave comes, and I'm standing there, and a Midwesterner, and all of a sudden I jump, and this wave just hits me takes me down, and pins me underwater. I have no idea where I am. I have no idea which way is up. And I'm just trapped, utterly at the mercy of the power of this wave. And right before I feel like I'm going to start taking on water, I hit the beach. And I'm able to crawl out and... I had this moment where at the same time I was thinking about this, this wave, it, it, was, it pinned me down. It had absolute power over me. There was nothing I could do. And yet, it was the very same thing that rescued me, that got me to safety. Now, That's just an effort to try to give you a little bit of a glimpse. When we see in the Bible the fear of the Lord and what it means to be in awe of Him, He has absolute power. We are utterly helpless before Him. And at the very same time, He is the one who can see us home, who can see us to safety. So if the psalmist is here schooling us in the fear of the Lord, what does it look like? What, is it, what does he actually look to the Lord for? And I want you to think about this for a moment. As you sit here tonight, and you know your own life, you know what you, you think you need at least, or what you would like from God, or wish he would do for you, what, what are you looking to him for? Or what were you looking to him for this week? Or what do you think you're looking to him for in the coming week? Just to give you a moment to think about that by way of some examples I might have, I would just like for my week to go the way I would like it to go. (laughs) I would like to get the things done that I know I need to get done in a fairly timely manner. Seems fairly basic. Or I would like for our home life to be peaceful and fun and full of laughter, not conflict and arguing and fighting. 
Or maybe you would like for things to go well at work, or for a coworker to be kinder, or a boss to be more generous or thoughtful. I wonder how much of this, though, we think of God, we look to him like we might look to a vending machine. Where you, you show up to God, even in prayer, and like putting a coin into the vending machine, hit the button you want and hope that it spits out what you ask for. And this idea that God is there in the service of you, rather than the other way around, the way in which this psalm pictures our relationship to God. Now, by contrast to that, look at what, in verse 3, what the psalmist looks to God for. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. The one thing that we, are, we need to look to the Lord for is mercy. That's the one thing he asks for. In the midst of a situation where he is filled up and overwhelmed, he prays for mercy. And this, this word mercy in the Old Testament is actually the New Testament equivalent to grace. Unmerited favor. Now, why is this so important? Because when you pray for mercy, what you're saying is, God, I don't deserve anything I'm asking for. I recognize I am not entitled to any of it. And every good thing that you bring into my life is a sheer gift. It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. Please have mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but how on earth can we really do this when we're at the end of our rope? How can we simply pray for mercy and leave it in the hands of God, trusting that he is actually good and true in everything he says? Because when we're at the end of our rope, that's not what we want. We want what we want now. And of the places in Scripture I think that we could go to see this, what I want you to see is that, you know, if we're honest, my guess is that instead of crying out for mercy, we tend to grumble and complain. In other words, what we see in this psalm is simply something that we cannot do on our own, which is why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come and, as it were, be the servant in this psalm for us. And listen to what we read here in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How do you and I become the kind of people for whom this psalm becomes the heartbeat of our lives? 
The only way this kind of psalm become woven into our lives is to remember who is the one that sang this song first and fulfills it for us. It's the Lord Jesus, even to the point of dying on the cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for psalms like this that, that on the one hand teach us that the scriptures are really honest and realistic about life as we know it and life this side of heaven. And at the same time, how they teach us to look to you. And not only to look to you, to, but to find in Jesus the one who has done that perfectly for us and who can actually deal with our grumbling and our complaining and replace it with humility and dependence and the fear of the Lord in order that we might cry out for mercy and patiently but confidently wait upon you. Father, would you please do that? In Jesus' name, amen.